Greetings. Um, I'm Professor Jennifer Trahan of NYU Center for Global Affairs, and I am pleased to present this lecture on war crimes prosecutions as part of the UN Audiovisual Library series. The lecture will cover historical developments of the laws of war and war crimes. It will then have a discussion of foundational concepts of the laws of war, also known as international humanitarian law. We'll then discuss some of the prosecutions before the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia, the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda, and the International Criminal Court in terms of its cases, as well as a series of war crimes amendments to the Rome Statute. So starting with the historical developments, we see early references to war crimes prosecutions as early as the 1500s. One of our early compilations on the laws of war is, was developed by Columbia University professor Francis Lieber, known as the Lieber Code, um, in 1863, introducing some of the key concepts of the laws of war, followed by the 1864 St. Petersburg Declaration, as well as early Hague and Geneva Conventions, for instance, 1899-1907 Hague Conventions. And very interestingly, just as a side note, we see in parallel with the development of the laws of war, a robust peace movement in the end of the 1800s, early 1900s, um, with the concept there needs to be regulation of the conduct of war, but also attempts to not have aggressive war. Um, these are some of the goals with the 1913 founding of the Peace Palace in The Hague. And of course, we have the famous 1928 Kellogg-Briand Pact. The single largest compilation of the laws of war, of course, are the four 1949 Geneva Conventions developed post-World War II, responding to the horrific atrocities of World War II. We do see kind of a proliferation in the field of international law and, of course, the creation of the UN itself. The four Geneva Conventions covering, one, wounded and sick armed forces in the field, two, wounded, sick, and shipwrecked members of armed forces at sea, three, prisoners of war, and four, protection of civilians in time of war. And most of those conventions are aimed at international armed conflict. That's what they were responding to post-World War II. And they enumerate very clearly certain war crimes known as grave breaches. Um, and these are war crimes when committed in international armed conflict. There is one provision in the four 1949 Geneva Conventions that regulates internal armed conflict, also known as non-international armed conflict, and that is known as Common Article 3. And this also sets forth a basket of war crimes. Here one sees this early divergence in the regulation of the conduct of international armed conflict and versus non-international armed conflict. There's simply more agreement on the conduct of international armed conflict. This drives there being um, later um, more recognition of the war crimes that are those committed in international armed conflict. And we still see this divergence today, for instance, in the International Criminal Courts Rome Statute, which I'll talk about later. The listener might want to ponder, does this differentiation make sense, that they're really different sets of war crimes. I will say it is historically grounded, um, and it does come out of a sense that what is in the international arena is more the subject, properly the subject of international law, and states are more reticent to have regulations that are solely in, you know, dealing with their um, internal to the state. 
um, but this we do have this difference. We see this again in the the most significant update to the laws of war are the two additional protocols of 1977, additional protocol one dealing with international armed conflict, additional protocol two dealing with non-international armed conflict. Um, so these are some of the, the main conventions um, on the laws of war. Sometimes we have uh, laws devoted to specific weapon systems, and I'll go into some of those. But the laws of war and war crimes prosecutions kind of rest on foundational principles, such as the principles of distinction and proportionality. So then they don't need a convention every time a new weapon system is developed, because any kind of weapon system must meet these foundational principles. So the principle of distinction requires that the party to the conflict shall at all times distinguish between the civilian population and combatants. And this would similarly hold true vis-a-vis um, -vis military targets versus civilian objects, a very foundational principle regardless of the weapon system. Proportionality really talks about the amount of force and really the collateral radius of destruction around, um, let's say, a, a military target. Um, and it really talks to what weapon are you employing for that target. It can be defined as the harm caused to civilians or civilian property, um, which must be proportional and not excessive in relation to the concrete and direct military advantage anticipated by an attack on a military object. There is also the prohibition on unnecessary suffering. So as I said, these are kind of the foundational principles. So we don't need weapon systems, um, conventions for each different weapon system. But we sometimes do have these. So I'll just note, um, and these are um, more horrific weapons. They tend to be ones that are indiscriminate. Um, 1928 protocol for the prohibition of the use in war of asphyxiating poisonous or other gases and of bacteriological methods of warfare. And this, again, is responding to the horrific trench warfare of World War I and use of mustard gas. So we have an early prohibition um, on biological um, chemical weapons. As to nuclear weapons, we now have a treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons. It just entered into force January 22, 2021. Prior to that, there was more focus on limiting testing with the Limited Test Ban Treaty than the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty, although that one is not yet in force, and the Non-Proliferation Treaty, attempting um, to prevent non-nuclear countries from obtaining nuclear weapons. Um, nuclear weapons um, uh, are not um, expressly um, prohibited in, as a war crime in the International Criminal Court's Rome Statute, although Mexico has an amendment before the Special Working Group on Rome Statute Amendments that would add them. I should mention, whereas biological chemical weapons are banned under the International Criminal Court's Rome Statute, uh, which is not the only um, place that their use would be banned even for um, uh, non-Rome statute state parties. A few of the other weapon-specific conventions would be the Landmines Convention, also known as the Ottawa Convention. Uh, its name is the Convention on the Prohibition of the Use, Stockpiling, Production, and Transfer of Anti-Personnel Mines and on their Destruction. This is not expressly in the Rome Statute. We have the 1995 Protocol on Blinding Laser Weapons. They are war crimes under the Rome Statute. This was a 2017 amendment. 
And there is a convention on cluster munitions. These are not expressly in the Rome Statute. Again, I think we see these, um, these are particularly destructive weapons that tend to be used indiscriminately. Um, for instance, a landmine can't tell whether a civilian or combatant has stepped on it. So that's an example of an indiscriminate weapon. A cluster munitions, there are older and newer generations of cluster munitions. Some can be more precisely targeted than others, but they tend to um, drop their bomblets in a large kind of radius, football-sized field radius, um, making them a fairly indiscriminate weapon. Um, just while I'm talking particular weapons, before I go more into war crimes prosecutions, I'll say I think our challenges for the future um, have to deal with cyber warfare and autonomous weapons. Um, so in cyber warfare, um, there have been two foundational manuals, Tallinn 1.0 and Tallinn 2.0, um, that make the basic point that cyber um, warfare is governed by the rules of international humanitarian law. Um, I think this is, is absolutely the correct position to take. It's not yet universally accepted. So I think we need developments in, in this way. Um, I've had the privilege of working with Liechtenstein on the Council of Advisors for um, uh, the Rome Statute and Cyber Warfare, making the point that cyber weapons um, can be encompassed within some of the Rome Statute's crimes if they inflicted very serious harm, um, it, which might entail killing or um, uh, physical destruction uh, of uh, property or objects, um, or perhaps even broader. And there will be a report coming out on this in the fall of 2021, um, and that they would be covered without a Rome statute amendment, that um, they are covered in the current definitions of the crimes. And as I mentioned, I think another future challenge is autonomous weapons, um, that we can't ever have weapons um, that no one is responsible for. It's, it's key in terms of war crimes that we have responsibility. I'll just say one word on drone usage. There's a lot of criticism of drone usage. Drones um, can be weaponized in that they do surveillance and um, then they have, a, they have uh, the capacity to take the strike themselves or um, they can do surveillance and another weapon um, launches the attack. Drones are um, can be precisely targeted, so there's nothing inherently problematic in their usage. So we basically can use the, the basic rules on the laws of war in terms of them. The question is where and how they are used. Are they used in accordance with the laws of war in situations that constitute armed conflict or have a nexus to armed conflict? So those would be the questions we would ask. Moving to the topic of war crimes prosecutions, um, I would say, firstly, the most logical place where these may occur would be in the national court system through potentially military courts and the application of military laws. Um, to the extent um, that a country is dualist, of course, they, the country would have to incorporate Geneva Convention provisions and or customary international law into its domestic criminal code. A modest country um, would not need to do so much incorporation. Um, hopefully, domestic countries do so um, using the Geneva Convention versions of the crimes. Um, and then, of course, Rome statute state parties um, would want to incorporate the Rome statute versions. I don't believe all states have incorporated the Rome statute into their domestic law. 
And this is very important if a state would want to exercise complementarity under the Rome Statute. Um, complementarity being the, the state essentially has first crack at the prosecutions, um, and if it is willing and able to do them, the International Criminal Court stands down. But if the state doesn't have the right laws, um, it can't do those war crimes prosecutions. Going back historically, of course, the, the key moment we have war crimes prosecutions and the field of international criminal responsibility really take off is the International Military Tribunal at Nuremberg. So this is a watershed moment um, for um, uh, the crime of aggression and crimes against humanity as well. Um, as you know, the, the charge of genocide is it's actually mentioned in the indictment, but it's not one of the official charges at Nuremberg. But pre prior to this, there had been a lot of focus on state responsibility. And Nuremberg is kind of our turning point that there's inter uh, individual criminal responsibility. And of course, there is actually both. Um, and we see this in the articles on state responsibility for international wrongful acts, for instance, out of the ILC. And we do have a state can be responsible um, for um, atrocity crimes as well as individual criminal responsibility. So these really work in parallel. Going back to the Nuremberg Tribunal in Article 6B of the London Charter, it's a fairly short list of war crimes. And I will go through some of the lists of the war crimes of the different tribunals because they're actually different lists. We don't have one set of war crimes, um, but at that time, um, they cover what, violations of the laws or customs of war, which shall include but not be limited to. So just footnote, that's an open-ended list. And I'll talk a little more about open-ended lists and the challenges they pose. Um, shall not be limited to murder, ill treatment, or deportation to slave labor, or for any other purpose of civilian populations of or in occupied territory, murder or ill treatment of prisoners of war or persons on the seas, killing of hostages, plunder of public or private property, wanton destruction of cities, towns, or villages, devastation not justified by military necessity. And of course, these are war crimes prosecutions um, by the allies, US, UK, France, the Soviet Union of Axis country nationals with judges and prosecutors. Um, from the four allies, and this subjects, of course, Nuremberg to certain critiques, but it's a very foundational start to this field. We have, in parallel, the International Military Tribunal for the Far East, known as the Tokyo Tribunal, also does war crimes prosecutions, as well as crimes against humanity and aggressive war. Um, not necessarily complete, for instance, the use of um, so-called comfort women, holding women in sexual slavery um, by for service by the um, for use by the Japanese military, um, escapes the Tokyo Tribunal's um, prosecutions. Um, a, approximately 200,000 mainly Korean women were held um, in this with large fatality rates. Um, the world then falls into the Cold War. We don't have prosecutions at that level. Um, of course, in Nuremberg, um, the U.S. and the Soviets um, were aligned in creating Nuremberg, and it really takes till we fall out of the Cold War um, to continue with these kind of tribunal prosecutions at the international level. So it's in 1993, we have the Security Council creating the Yugoslav Tribunal in 1994, the Rwanda Tribunal. Um, they have different lists of war crimes. So I'll just go over these, um, and you can easily look up uh, on the internet the different statutes to see the list of war crimes. So 
um, the Yugoslav Tribunal statute breaks their war crimes into Article II, which are grave breaches of the Geneva Conventions. So these are essentially straight out of the 1949 Geneva Conventions. And then it has Article III covering violations of the laws or customs of war, or essentially somewhat of an update after the 1949. Um, and I'll just, for instance, uh, read the Article III war crimes, the update employment of poisonous weapons or other weapons calculated to cause unnecessary suffering, wanton destruction of cities, towns, villages, or devastation not justified by military necessity, attack or bombardment by whatever means of undefended towns, villages, dwellings, or buildings, seizure of, or, of destruction or willful damage done to institutions dedicated to religion, charity and education, the arts and sciences, historic monuments and works of art and science, plunder of public or private property. Um, the sister tribunal, the Rwanda tribunal, has a different list of war crimes. It's found in Article 4 of the Rwanda tribunal statute. Um, and it states, the tribunal shall have power to prosecute violations of Article 3, common to the four nineteen forty nine Geneva Convention, so it's coming directly from that source, as well as the war crimes in additional Protocol 2. And these shall include, but not be limited to, and then we have a list, again, this open-ended formulation. Um, so... Um, some of the key adjudications of the Yugoslav and Rwanda Tribunal in terms of war crimes, well, first the Tadic case, that's the first case of the Yugoslav Tribunal, and sets some foundational jurisprudence, including on the definition of armed conflict. Because if you don't have armed conflict, uh, you don't have war crimes prosecution. So this is kind of our first question to ask. Tadic states that an armed conflict is said to exist whenever there is resort to armed force between states. So that would be your international armed conflict. Or protracted armed violence between governmental authorities and organized armed groups, or between such groups within a state. And that would be your non-international armed conflict. I'm taking that from the decision on the defense motion for interlocutory appeal on jurisdiction, October 2 of 1995, paragraph 70. Um, Tadish goes on to discuss the requirements of intensity and organization of the parties, um, and that is foundational um, because, as mentioned, one has to distinguish situations of internal disturbances, tensions, such as riots, isolated and sporadic acts of violence. That is not triggering a state of armed conflict, so then you aren't in dealing with war crimes prosecutions. And, of course, we have these different definitions of international armed conflict versus non-international armed conflict. It is important to make that differentiation because your lists of war crimes differ. Um, Rwanda was basically dealing with crimes internal to Rwanda, so dealing with non-international armed conflict war crimes, although the Rwanda Tribunal also had jurisdiction over crimes in, in neighboring countries. But it's basically dealing with crimes internal to Rwanda. Um, and the differentiation between international and non-international armed conflict gets complex because one conflict can also have aspects that are international armed conflict and aspects that are non-international armed conflict. The Tadic case also was foundational um, in that it makes clear that you can have war crimes committed during non-international armed conflict. Um, this had to be... this 
decision was important because if you go to the 1949 Geneva Conventions, the international armed conflict war crimes are very clearly labeled grave breaches. But then you just have this common Article 3, common because it's in each of the four 1949 conventions, but it doesn't say, and these are war crimes. So that's really what the Tadic case um, rules, that they are war crimes. There's significantly new jurisprudence regarding rape. Um, of course, it's the Rwanda Tribunal on the Akiezu's case that says rape can be an underlying crime of genocide. But we also have Yugoslav Tribunal jurisprudence. Rape can be an underlying crime, a war crime and crime against humanity. One of the puzzling decisions I found cur um, curious uh, was the Galic case. Um, so there we have Republic of Srpska forces firing on... Um, civilians in Sarajevo for 22 months. No precise order is found. Um, the court settled on, it sounds like a theory of order by omission. Um, I, I think it might have been better to caption it, circumstantial evidence of ordering. Anyway, can one order by omission? I found puzzling because an order seems an active thing and omission is a passive. Um, it is the lack of action. So that I found debatable. Um, even though I think the Yugoslav Tribunal makes really foundational rulings, an incredibly significant tribunal, I will single out two decisions I thought were disappointing. The Perisic case, of course, adds a, a new element to the crime of aiding and abetting. And after like 20 years into the life of the Yugoslav Tribunal, we have the specific direction theory. We don't have war crimes unless the weapons are like specifically directed to committing a war crime, which is an impossible standard. Luckily, this gets reversed in by later appeals chamber rulings. So I would say this is not part of aiding and abetting jurisprudence today. Um, there's also a disappointing ruling in the Gotovina case. Um, it, it, the issue there is really the collateral radius of destruction around a military target and what is the appropriate collateral radius. Disappointing to me, the, the judges don't answer this question. They don't ask for more briefing. They don't solve it. They simply enter an acquittal, which to me was not the, the, the reasoned way to deal with the question posed to them. Um, but I'm just isolating those. Um, otherwise, the Yugoslav Tribunal, is, I think, prosecuted the most individuals of any of the international or hybrid tribunals um, and been very significant. Um, it, the jurisprudence of the Yugoslav and Rwanda tribunals is quite consistent, and I think that is because they share the same appeals chamber. So they had split trial chambers. They go up to the same appellate level. One area where I noted some divergence, um, I was tracking... Um, in the definition of rape, the Rwanda tribunal in the Akiezu case states, rape cannot be captured in a mechanical description of object and body parts. But then I, if I look at the Yugoslav tribunal um, jurisprudence, for instance, in the Kunarets case, it's a very mechanical description of body parts. Um, and then I see trial chambers of the Rwanda tribunal seeming to try to resolve this. It was uh, Muvunye and Muhimana seem to try to interpret how these um, can be interpreted as consistent. Um, I will now go into um, some of the contextual elements for the Yugoslav and Rwanda tri Tribunal's war crimes. Um, for the sake of time, I can't do all of the underlying crimes. There are a lot of different underlying crimes. So I'll just say 
For Article II war crimes, there were basically two requirements. There has to be an international armed conflict, and then um, the victim has to be a, quote, protected person. Um, and Tadic, again, I go back to Tadic, uh, more on international armed conflict, not only um, a conflict between two states, but you can have something that looked like internal armed conflict become internationalized. And they talk about when another state intervenes in the conflict through its troops, or if alternatively some of the participants in the internal armed conflict act on behalf of the other state. And here we have the famous overall control test set forth um, in the Tadic case. As to being um, protected persons, we have that, for instance, discussed in the Bloskic Appeals Chamber Judgment, paragraph 172, and the Cordage Appeals Chamber Judgment, paragraph 329. Um, Article 3 is a little more complex because it has one of these open-ended lists, the war crimes shall include but not be limited to. And if one's not careful, uh, a clever defense lawyer, of course, will make hay of this. Um, anytime you have an assertion of a war crime that's not specifically enumerated, arguments that it violates the principle of legality. So, for instance, in the Kunaritz decision, the appeals chamber, paragraph 66, says four conditions need to be met for a war crime to fall into this Article uh, 3 of the Yugoslav Tribunal Statute. The violation must constitute an infringement of a rule of international humanitarian law. The rule must be customary in nature, or if it belongs to treaty law, the required conditions must be met. The violation must be serious. That is to say, it must constitute a breach of a rule protecting important values, and the breach must involve grave consequences for the victims. And the violation must entail individual criminal responsibility. And then, for instance, we have enumeration. Some of the violations covered would be Hague Law, Geneva Grave Breaches, Geneva Common Article 3, etc. And that is also in Tadic, paragraph 89. As to the general elements, that was just figure out which war crimes are in Article 3. For the general elements of Article 3, um, they drop the protected person requirement. And um, here you need international or internal armed conflict, and the accused must be closely related to the armed conflict in his acts. And this is known as the nexus requirement. There must be a connection between the acts of the accused and the armed conflict. At the Rwanda Tribunal, um, they um, listed, it's, it's essentially quite similar, but they enumerated as four elements. Um, the existence, or I'm sorry, three elements, the existence of a non-international armed conflict, this is for the Rwanda Tribunal, again, this nexus requirement, and the victims were not directly taking part in hostilities. So if you want to look further at the elements of the underlying war crimes, I have written books on these. Um, they're online. So we have um, a digest, Genocide War Crimes and Crimes Against Humanity, a topical digest of the case law of the International Criminal Tribunal for Yuga, the former Yugoslavia, published by Human Rights Watch in 2006. Um, so you can look at all the underlying crimes there. Um, Genocide War Crimes Crimes Against Humanity, a digest of the case law of the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda, published by Human Rights Watch in 2010. Um, and that also includes a compilation of the war crimes prosecutions. Moving to, I will just briefly mention um, the war crimes prosecutions of the Special Court for Sierra Leone um, and the Cambodia Tribunal. For the Special Court for Sierra Leone, two of the most significant new war crimes prosecutions are attacks on peacekeepers 
and their conviction for the conscription and use of child soldiers. So those are some of the novel developments of the hybrid special court for Sierra Leone, which sat in Freetown, Sierra Leone. The Cambodia Tribunal, known as the Extraordinary Chambers for the Courts of Cambodia, also conducts war crimes prosecutions, in its case 001, against defendant Doik. Their convictions for a number of grave breaches, willful killing, torture, and inhuman, inhumane treatment, willfully causing great suffering or serious injury to body or health, willfully depriving a prisoner of war or civilians of the rights of fair and regular trial, and unlawful confinement of civilians. We see these war crimes um, convictions also in case 002.2. That's the second part of their second case against defendants um, Nunchea and Q Sampan. Um, Nunchea now being deceased, and the appeal is currently pending on Q Sampan. There were also war crimes convictions by the hybrid state court. Um, in Sarajevo, Bosnia, the um, East Timor special panels for serious crimes. Um, now the, the Kosovo specialist chamber um, is pursuing war crimes. So these aren't the only tribunals. Um, there are additional ones as well. Now moving to the International Criminal Court. Um, as I mentioned, we are dealing with different listings of war crimes, those committed in international armed conflict and those committed in non-international conflict. So if you start at the Rome Statute, you see subdivisions of eight, paragraph 8.2. Um, in A, we have grave breaches, uh, which are the war crimes coming straight out of the 1949 Geneva Conventions, and these are war crimes if committed during international armed conflict. Then in 8.2b, we have other serious violations of the laws and customs applicable in international armed conflict. So this is a fairly extensive list, which essentially updates after the 1949 list. Then we have subdivision C, paragraph C. In the case of an armed conflict not of an international character, we have the common Article 3 um, war crimes. And then in um, subparagraph E, we have other serious violations of the laws and customs applicable in armed conflicts not of international character. So the non-international armed conflict war crimes. If you compare the lists in A and B versus C and E, you see there are a lot more war crimes covered in, if committed in international armed conflict. And I, I question whether this makes sense. Others apparently have as well because some of the amendments to the Rome Statute are not amendments by way of adding new crimes, but actually harmonizing the list. So we see this in both the 2010 amendment and the 2019 amendment. They're taking war crimes that had been covered in the Rome Statute if committed in international armed conflict and adding them to the list of non-international conflict. So the 2010 Kampala Amendment, of course, we have the Kampala Amendment on the crime of aggression, but we also have war crimes amendments concluded in Kampala at the review conference of the International Criminal Court Assembly of State Parties. They added to Article 8.2e um, clauses that make it a war crime to employ poison, asphyxiating, poisonous, or other gases, and all analogous liquids, materials, or devices, or expanding bullets. Um, and they added this to the war crimes if committed during non-international. It was already there in international. Also, the amendment in 2019 concluded at the Assembly of States Parties adds the international use, the, sorry, the intentional use of starvation of civilians as a method of warfare 
as a war crime if committed in non-international armed conflict. It already had been if committed in international armed conflict. The 2017 amendment is different. It adds war crimes to both international and non-international armed conflict provisions, and it adds um, use of microbial or other biological agents or toxins, um, use of non-detectable fragments, and blinding laser weapons as war crimes to both provisions. For the contextual requirements, again, we have the differentiation of, the, of those for international armed conflict and non-international armed conflict. And in terms of international, we also have to differentiate between Article 82A and Article 82B. Um, they're somewhat different, the contextual elements. And you can find this in the ICC Elements of the Crimes, which is online. And it very clearly enumerates um, the elements of the crimes, not only the contextual requirement, but the underlying war crime. Um, but do note the elements are phrased as if your perpetrator is always committing the crime. And you have to overlay on top of that that there are different forms of visual, individual cr criminal responsibility found in Article 25 of the Rome Statute, and there's commander superior responsibility in Article 28 of the Rome Statute. So our contextual elements for Article 82A are the protected person requirement, the perpetrator was aware of the factual circumstances that established their protected status. And the conduct took place in the context of and was associated with, that's kind of the nexus slid in there, with an international armed conflict and the perpetrator's awareness of the circumstances establishing an international armed conflict. Don't be confused. These are awareness of the overall contextual requirements when you get to the individual underlying war crimes, there's still the act and the mental state requirements, the actus reus and the mens rea. So you, you may most likely have a requirement of intent in terms of the commission of the individual underlying war crime. Um, for 8 to um, B, it is basically the same, but it drops the protected person requirement. And for 8 to C and 8 to E, the war crimes committed in non-international armed conflict. Um, we have only the requirement the conduct took place in the context of and was associated with an armed conflict not of an international character. And the purpose trader was aware of the factual circumstances that established the existence of the armed conflict. Um, some of the key convictions in war crimes um, rendered by the International Criminal Court um, have been, um, first there are a number of jurisprudential firsts, but I'll just say there have been war crimes convictions in the Lubanga case, Katanga, Netaganda, Ongwen, and Almaty. And war crimes charges have been confirmed at the pretrial stage um, in a number of cases, including Banda, Yakutam, and Nagaison and the Al-Rahman case. Um, in terms of jurisprudential firsts of the International Criminal Court, the conviction of Thomas Lubanga Dilo was the first guilty verdict rendered by the ICC, and he was convicted in March 2012 for the war, crime co war crimes committed in the DRC, um, the war crime of enlisting and conscripting children under the age of 15 years um, to the forces of the um, FPLC. 
um, and using them to participate in hostilities. We have a first with a um, guilty plea of Almaty. So this was not a result of a trial, but a guilty plea. And it was the first conviction of the war crime of destruction of cultural heritage. Um, He was convicted of uh, destroying historic monuments, specifically nine mausoleums and one mosque in Timbuktu, Mali. The Bosco Netaganda case was the first final conviction at the ICC for sexual violence, including against men and a conviction at the ICC for a commander for crimes of sexual violence committed by troops under his control. Dominique Ongwen is the first former child soldier to be convicted by the ICC and, of course, the first LRA, Lord's Resistance Army suspect, to be transferred to the ICC. He was convicted at the trial stage of a number of war crimes convicted, um, uh, committed in Uganda, and his case is on appeal. Um, for the sake of time, I'm not going to be able to go into all of the underlying elements of the war crimes. As I say, um, you can find these in the elements of crimes, and there's also a very helpful online case matrix network um, of ICC case law. Um, I do want to, before closing, uh, just note um, in terms of um, where the Rome statute may go in the future, as I mentioned, um, cyber attacks, I think, can be covered in the current Rome statute. And there has been this effort to harmonize the war crimes if committed in international armed conflict, add more to the list of those committed in non-armed non-international armed conflict. There's also um, another provision I have a little concern about that I think future attention needs to be paid, and that is Article 8-2-A-X-X, so a 20. And it lists the following as a war crime if committed during international armed conflict. Um, to employ weapons, projectiles, materials, or methods of warfare, which are of a nature to cause superfluous injury or unnecessary suffering or which are inherently indiscriminate in violation of international law of armed conflict, provided such weapons, projectiles, material, and methods of warfare are the subject of a comprehensive prohibition and are included in an annex to this statute. There is no such annex to this statute. So remember, starting with foundational principles would prohibit weapons that cause superfluous injury or unnecessary suffering. And weapons must not be indiscriminate. But the Rome Statute doesn't have this annex. So the Rome Statute can't conduct these prosecutions. So to me, this is a troubling difference between the laws of war and what the Rome Statute can prosecute. I'm hoping um, the the group that uh, looks at amendments to the Rome Statute, uh, war crimes amendments, um, can address this in the future. So I will conclude with a few last thoughts. There is extensive regulation of the conduct of war. There's a a lot of law on war crimes. Um, I'm not saying there aren't gaps. There are certain gaps. I've I've singled out a couple of them. You know, there are occasional disappointing holdings, but I would say we don't lack the jurisprudence. I say the greatest challenge in terms of war crimes prosecutions is that we have armed conflict. So if you didn't have as much armed conflict, you wouldn't have war crimes. This may sound 
naive or simplistic, but I will note the International Criminal Court crime of aggression is trying to cut down on the instances of armed conflict. It's essentially trying to enforce the UN charter system, that there should not be aggressive war. There should only be Chapter 7 authorized Security Council interventions and individual or collective self-defense under Article 51 of the UN charter. Um, So at a very macro level, um, to cut down on war crimes, we do have to look to the regulation of war itself. In terms of war crimes prosecutions, there are also challenges. Um, uh, and um, at the domestic level, um, I, I mentioned um, there, there one naturally looks to the domestic level. There aren't international tribunals for all of the situation countries. Not every state is a party to the International Criminal Court statute. Um, so, and the, there is limited jurisdiction of the tribunals that we have. So we still do have to look to domestic courts for conduct of war crimes prosecutions. And one issue can be lack of will. So particularly if state actors are, compl- are implicated in war crimes, Will the state fully and fairly do the prosecutions? That's a challenge. It could be a challenge even for peacekeepers to the UN. The UN doesn't um, prosecute peacekeepers. Um, It leaves it to individual troop contributing countries to do their own prosecutions. Are they doing so? Um, Again, we may see problems and lack of will. We also have the problem of lack of ability. And these are the classic unwilling and unable that you found in Rome Statute Article 17. This could be a destroyed um, judiciary. It can also manifest in a state not having parts uh, control over parts of its country. Um, The rule of law is simply unable to function. What I think the unwilling and unable criteria somewhat miss is an equally pernicious problem, and I will call it all too willing. And it's lack of fair trials, I would say out of overzealousness to kind of throw the book at the accused. This issue came up in the Sunusi case before the International Criminal Court, um, where the concern was more uh, vengeful trials in in Libya against um, an ex-Qaddafi regime official uh, once the Qaddafi regime was out of power. Um, And do recognize this problem that you can have unfair trials out of um, a concern of shielding the accused, which is unwillingness, but you could also have unfair trials out of concern, uh, you know, overzealousness to prosecute. Um, and of course, when we're talking war crimes trials, the goal is fair trials. Um, that's a very, you know, foundational concept we have. We definitely have a, we know what a fair trial is. Uh, look at Article 14 of the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. You see the enumeration of what is a fair trial. Um, so I'm not in this lecture talking about any war crimes prosecution, but fair war crimes prosecutions. So these are some of the challenges, I think, at the domestic level. At the international level, I refer to one, and that's simply that there aren't tribunals everywhere, and the International Criminal Court doesn't have universal jurisdiction. Not every state is a party to it. So this is one of the challenges. How do you get the states that are not parties to the International Criminal Court to join the court? Um, And even so, we do have to recognize there are limitations of capacity that the tribunals have. They're simply not set up to do every war crimes case. So our tribunals that had the greatest capacity were the Yugoslav and Rwanda tribunals. Um, Hybrids designed to to prosecute far fewer 
And the International Criminal Court is not prosecuting that many cases in each situation country. Now, if states funded them more, we could have more tribunals and more prosecutions. Um, but funding has really been a challenge. And we see the international community sometimes not even funding the tribunals that it had uh, set up. Um, and this is a way of limiting the prosecution. So I think going forward, um, pedantic as this sounds, but funding, the international community's commitment to war crimes prosecutions um, is a serious issue. Um, and then that the tribunals don't do all that many cases means you're going to need to have war crimes prosecutions at the domestic level. And these are extremely important. I uh, set up some of the challenges um, and, of course, first of all, the national jurisdiction needs to have the right war crimes, need a full, hopefully, Rome statute list of war crimes on its books. Um, and I think this, this is an interest for, of Rome statute state parties if they want to exercise complementarity. But I think even non-Rome statute state parties might want to have the updated list of war crimes on their book. Um, sometimes the domestic prosecutions can be done by hybrid courts, such as the hybrid state court um, in Bosnia. Um, we've been seeing universal jurisdiction cases, um, so prosecutions in third countries under universal jurisdiction or other jurisdictional theories. They can be potentially assisted by evidence collection, such as mechanisms that we have for the Syria, Myanmar, uh, and um, Iraq, the IIIM, the IIIM, and, and UNITAD. Um, so we are going to need to continue to have war crimes prosecutions at these other levels because simply the international level can't do it all. Not that the international is, isn't incredibly significant. I would say it is. It often sets the key precedent, the foundational principles, showing rule of law functioning, often prosecuting your highest level perpetrators and or the most significant crime scenes. So international and hybrid tribunals are incredibly important, but they are not the full answer in terms of capacity. Um, so simply to conclude, I think these are some of the challenges, both where the law needs to develop, a couple of the gaps in the law, and the overall macro challenges to ensuring accountability through fair trials that satisfy internationally accepted fair trial standards. I'll conclude here. Thank you.